0: it's Judges uh, chapter 8 from 33 to chapter 9:25 and then from chapter 9:42 to 57 okay so from chapter 8 verse 33 no sooner had Gideon died than the israelites again prostituted themselves to the baals they set up baal berith as their god and did not remember the lord their god who had rescued them from the hands of all their enemies on every side. They also failed to show any loyalty to the family of Jerubbaal, that is Gideon, in spite of all the good things he had done for them. Abimelech, son of Jerubbaal, went to his mother's brothers in Shechem and said to them and to all his mother's clan, Ask all the citizens of Shechem, which is better for you, to have all 70 of Jerubbaal's sons rule over you, or just one man. Remember, I am your flesh and blood. When the brothers repeated all this to the citizens of Shechem, they were inclined to follow Abimelech, for they said, he is related to us. They gave him 70 shackles of silver from the temple of Baal-Beareth, and Abimelech used it to hire reckless scoundrels who became his followers. He went to his father's home in Ophrah and on one stone, murdered his 70 brothers, the sons of Jeroboam. But Jotham, the youngest son of Jeroboam, escaped by hiding. Then all the citizens of Shechem and Bethmelo gathered beside the great tree at the pillar in Shechem to crown Abimelech king. When Jotham was told about this, he climbed up on the top of Mount Gerizim and shouted to them, Listen to me, citizens of Shechem. So that God may listen to you. One day the trees went out to anoint a king for themselves. They said to the olive tree, Be our king. But the olive tree answered, Should I give up my oil, by which both gods and humans are honored, to hold sway over the trees? Next the trees said to the fig tree, Come, be our king. But the fig tree replied, Should I give up my fruit, so good and sweet, to hold sway over the trees? Then the trees said to the vine, Come and be our king. But the vine answered, Should I give up my wine, which cheers both gods and humans to hold sway over the trees? Finally, all the trees said to the thornbush, Come and be our king. The thornbush said to the trees, If you really want to anoint me king over you, come and take refuge in my shade. But if not, Then let fire come out of the thorn bush and consume the cedars of Lebanon. Have you acted honorably and in good faith by making Abimelech king? Have you been fair to Jacob Baal and his family? Have you treated him as he deserves? Remember that my father fought for you and risked his life to rescue you from the hand of Midian. But today you have revolted against my father's family. You have murdered his 70 sons on a single stone and have made Abimelech, the son of his female slave, king over the citizens of Shechem because he was related to you. So have you acted honorably and in good faith towards Jeroboam and his family today? If you have, may Abimelech be your joy and may you be his too. But if not, if you have not, let fire come out from Abimelech and consume you the citizens of Shechem and Bethmelo, and that fire come from, out from you, the citizens of Shechem and Bethmelo, and consume Abimelech. Then Jotham fled, escaping to Beer, and he lived there because he was afraid of his brother Abimelech. After Abimelech had governed Israel for three years, God stirred up animosity between Abimelech and the citizens of Shechem, so that they acted treacherously against Abimelech. God did this in order that the crime against Jeroboam's 70 sons, the shedding of their blood, might be avenged on their brother, Abimelech, and on the citizens of Shechem, who had helped him murder his brothers. In opposition to him, these citizens of Shechem set men on the hilltops to ambush and rob everyone who passed by, and this was reported to Abimelech. Going from verse 42 of chapter 9 the next day the people of Shechem went out to the fields and this was reported to Abimelech so he took his men, divided them into three companies and set an ambush in the fields when he saw the people coming out of the city he rose to attack them Abimelech and the companies with him rushed forward to a position at the entrance of the city gate then two companies attacked those in the fields and struck them down all that day Abimelech pressed his attack against the city until he had captured it and killed its people. Then he destroyed the city and scattered salt over it. On hearing of this the citizens of the tower in the tower of Shechem went into the stronghold of the temple of Elbirith. When Abimelech heard that they had assembled there, he and all his men went up to Mount Zalman, he took an axe and cut off some branches, which he lifted to his shoulders. He ordered the men with him quick, Do what you have seen me do. So all the men cut branches and followed Abimelech. They piled them against the stronghold and set it on fire with the people still inside. So all the people in the tower of Shechem, about a thousand men and women, also died. Next, Abimelech went to to Thebes and besieged it and captured it. Inside the city, however, was a strong tower to which all the men and women or the people of the city, had fled. They had locked themselves in and climbed up on the tower roof. Abimelech went to the tower and attacked it, but as he approached the entrance to the tower to set it on fire, a woman dropped an upper millstone on his head and cracked his skull. Hurriedly he called to his armor-bearer, draw your sword and kill me so they can't say a woman killed him. So his servant ran him through and he died. When the Israelites saw that Abimelech was dead and they went home, thus God repaid the wickedness that Abimelech had done to his father by murdering his 70 brothers, God also made the people of Shechem pay for all their wickedness. The curse of Jotham, son of Jeroboam, came on them.
1: Hey, UniChurch, I'm Mike, one of the ministers here, and it's really good to be with you tonight. It's a big passage, it'll be helpful if you keep your Bibles open to it while we uh, we go through it. Uh, we have um, been going through the book of Judges together and every week we have seen this same cycle. Israel sin by following other gods and then God raises up a foreign army to conquer Israel and to wake them up to their sins so Israel turns back to God and cries for help and God forgives them and in his mercy raises up a judge who saves them and the land has peace. Uh, and we've been seeing that every time that judge dies, Israel just go back to rejecting God and the whole cycle starts again. And Judges has been this ongoing cycle, it's been on repeat. Uh, We saw it in Othniel, our first judge, and then Ehud, the the left-handed guy. Uh, We saw it with Deborah and her sidekick, Barak, and last week we saw it with Gideon, uh, also known as Jeroboam. Uh, Israel, they keep rejecting God, they keep doing evil, but God keeps rescuing them. He keeps saving them. There's this repeating cycle of sin that gets met with mercy, but not tonight. Uh, this passage tonight, it starts the same as all the cycles so far. You can have a look at it. It's the first verse we read, chapter 8, verse 33. No sooner, verse 33, had Gideon died than the Israelites again prostituted themselves to the Baals. They set up Baal Berith as their God and did not remember the Lord. So it starts just the same way as all the cycles. The, the judge, Gideon, dies and Israel do evil in the eyes of God. And uh, This is the kind of the moment where we expect the cycle to repeat and God in his mercy will kind of save them and forgive them and bring them restoration, but he doesn't. Instead, God hands them over to destruction and in his wrath brings judgment on them. That ongoing cycle of God's gracious rescue suddenly stops in this chapter. And look at how the chapter ended. Just flick to the end of chapter 9 Look at the last two verses. It tells us what's going on in this story. Verse 56. Thus God repaid the wickedness that Abimelech had done to his father by murdering his 70 brothers. God also made the people of Shechem pay for all their wickedness. So this gracious cycle of God that kind of makes up the book of Judges suddenly stops and God makes his people pay for their evil in this chapter. And it's not like God has abandoned his people Israel uh, because next week that cycle of sin met with mercy just picks up and starts again. The cycle repeats next week with the Judge Tola and then uh, Jephthah and then Samson. So what on earth happened in this chapter that we just read tonight? Because in this chapter, God destroys the Israelites who are engaged with this evil. Why? Where did the ever-patient God go? And what does this mean for us as his people? Like, can this happen to us? And what difference does Jesus make to this sort of thing? This is a really hugely practical thing. We're going to be looking at that tonight. But before we get into those kind of questions, we need to get the story clear in our heads. This story starts with the death of the last judge, Gideon, and he leaves behind 70 sons, which Gideon had to his numerous wives. And his 70 sons lived in the city of Ophrah, where Gideon lived, but Gideon had one extra son, not to any of his wives in Ophrah, but to a concubine that lived down the road in the city of Shechem. And that son was named Abimelech, and this guy is a man of ambition. He goes to the people of Shechem, the people that he's related to, because his mum was a concubine from there, and Abimelech says to them, hey, look, I don't want to scare you guys, but you don't want 70 of Gideon's sons ruling over you from the city down the road in Ophrah, do you? Wouldn't it be better if just one guy ruled you, and wouldn't it be better if he was related to you? I'm related to you. My mum was from this city of Shechem. And the people of Shechem, they kind of like this idea and so they finance a bloody murder campaign. They give Abimelech money from the pagan temple and Abimelech hires hitmen and they all go from Shechem up to Gideon's family home in Ophrah and they execute all of Gideon's 70 sons on a single stone. Now think about that logistically. Logistically. To kill 70 of them on one stone means you have to do it one at a time. So the first son is first to put his, is forced to put his head on the stone and he's slaughtered, while the others wait and watch. And then the next son. And then the next one. 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 And you have to keep doing that until you get all 70 killed. And Abimelech, at that point is the only one of Gideon's sons left to rule. And so they think the job is done and they all go back down to Shechem where they have their showers and they wash all the blood off and they put on their best clothes and they have a coronation party for Abimelech. And the wine is flowing and the music is playing and hands are being shook and partway through the coronation, there's this yelling and the music stops and the conversations cease and the eyes of everybody turn up to Mount Gerizim which is just on the edge and it overlooks the city of Shechem and up there on Mount Gerizim is Jotham, the youngest of Gideon's son who has somehow hidden and escaped being slaughtered on that stone and he's shouting out a parable to them, a parable about how these Israelites in Shechem have made Abimelech king. In the parable, some trees want a king and they approach an olive tree, a fig tree and a grapevine to be their king and they all decline and they say no and so in desperation, the trees then go to a thorn bush and ask it to be their king. Now, the olive, the fig tree and the grapevine, uh, they they all produce things that bless people. Uh, Olive oil, fruit, wine. But the thorn bush does not produce anything good. It just produces thorns that cut and hurt people. And what Jotham is kind of saying is, look, all my brothers that you guys killed were kind of like the olive and the fig tree and the grapevine. They are good men. Had you made them king, they would have blessed you. But you fools have chosen Abimelech. Abimelech is like a thorn bush. He is going to cut you. And Jotham pronounces this curse On the Israelites at Shechem for what they did to Gideon's family. It's the curse that actually drives the entire narrative. So we're going to have a bit of a look at it. It's there in verse 16 of chapter 9. I'll give your eyes a second to find it. Verse 16. This is what he shouts out from the mountain down to them. Verse 16. Have you acted honourably and in good faith by making Abimelech king? Have you been fair to Jeroboam, that's Gideon, and his family? Have you treated him as he deserves? Remember that my father fought for you and risked his life to rescue you from the hand of Midian, but today you've revolted against my father's family. You have murdered his 70 sons on a single stone and you've made Abimelech, the son of his female slave, king over the citizens of Shechem because he's related to you. So have you acted honorably and in good faith towards Jeroboam and his family today? If you have, may Abimelech be your joy and may you be his too. But if you've not, then let fire come out of Abimelech and consume you, the citizens of Shechem and Beth Milo, and let fire come out from you, the citizens of Shechem and Beth Milo, and consume Abimelech. And he ends his speech and then he runs for his life. Basically, the heart of what he said is, look, if you guys have acted honorably, like if there is some good reason why you've done this, then you've nothing to fear. But if you've sinned in the way that you treated Gideon's family, then may God see to it that justice is served to you. May fire come from Abimelech and consume you, and may fire come from you and consume Abimelech. And the rest of the chapter is consumed by telling the details of how God causes that to happen how God causes Abimelech and Shechem to destroy each other. It starts in verse 22. Verse 22, After Abimelech had governed Israel for three years, God stirred up animosity between Abimelech and the citizens of Shechem so that they acted treacherously against Abimelech. God did this in order that the crime against Jeroboam's 70 sons, the shedding of their blood, might be avenged on their brother Abimelech and on the citizens of Shechem. So God acts to avenge the murder of Gideon's sons by paying back the Israelites who were engaged in this evil. And in verse 25, it starts to happen. They start to destroy each other. In verse 25, we read, in opposition to Abimelech, These citizens of Shechem set men on the hilltops to ambush and rob everyone who passed by and this was reported to Abimelech. It starts with them giving Abimelech a political black eye by making it look like this new king is so lame he can't even protect his own hometown. And uh, things escalate pretty quickly. Abimelech hears that they're out in the fields and he sends his troops and he attacks And he besieges Shechem and he kills them all. Now, some people kind of escape the first round of his wrath and they hide in a tower in Shechem. And Abimelech cuts trees down and puts them up against the base of the tower and lights it. And he burns them all to death. Quite literally, fire comes from Abimelech and destroys the people of Shechem. And God makes the people of Shechem pay for the murder of Gideon's 70 sons. And with justice on Shechem, now God's judgment turns to Abimelech. Abimelech, for reasons that we're not told, goes down the road and besieges a satellite city called Thebes and attacks them. And again, the people there, they hide in a tower and Abimelech seems to be a kind of pragmatic kind of fellow and he thinks, well, you know, burning them to death in a tower at work last time, I would do the same this time. But as he goes to light the fire at the bottom of the tower, a woman drops a whopping great millstone on his head and cracks his skull and he dies. So now everybody in Shechem is dead. And now Abimelech is dead. And the narrative closes with verse 56 and 57. Thus God repaid the wickedness that Abimelech had done to his father by murdering his 70 brothers God also made the people of Shechem pay for all their wickedness. And the story ends. It's a very unique story in the book of Judges because it breaks from this repeating cycle of God graciously forgiving Israel and rescuing them from the consequences of their sin. Instead, in this chapter, God repays the people in Israel for their sin. Uh, this passage, it's teaching us something about God and something about his people. The first thing that we've got to wrestle with is that God is a God of perfect justice and retribution. This is a story about God delivering a just and right punishment on people for their evil that they have done. Justice is served for the slaughtering, for the calculated slaughtering of Gideon's family. We live in a world where victims are often denied justice Like, how many times do you see a victim denied justice because the guilty one somehow finds some loophole and manages to get away with it? And when that happens, have you noticed what the victims cry? They cry for justice because it's not fair. And the lack of justice really amplifies the pain that the victim goes through. Well, Jotham had 70 brothers murdered. Now, if God is just... He can't just shrug his shoulders at that. He can't just ignore it. Then what would we say about a human judge or police force that knew somebody was guilty of some horrible crime like this and they had the evidence to prove it and the power to do something about it but they just shrugged their shoulders and did nothing. We would cry for justice would we not? Deep in our hearts we know that justice is good And the justice that God measures out in chapter 9 is perfect. Consider this, Abimelech kills his 70 brothers on top of a single stone and he himself is killed beneath a single stone. That's not irony, that's perfect justice. God is a God of justice. Which is scary for us, for those of us who know our sin. Wonderfully, though, God is also a God of mercy who gives people like us the mercy that we don't deserve. This is really the first time in the book of Judges where God acts justly and gives his people Israel what they deserve. Up to this point, God has been consistently acting mercifully and giving his people Israel what they don't deserve mercy and forgiveness. His people, for eight chapters, have kept uh, sinning and doing all kinds of evil and abandoning the covenant and running off with other gods and then they just keep running back to Yahweh when they get in trouble and asking for help and God, in his mercy, for eight chapters, keeps forgiving them, cycle after cycle after cycle. But this is the first time in the book where God acts justly in giving the Israelites what they deserve. When God gives sinful people what we deserve, it's justice. But when he gives sinful people what we don't deserve, it's mercy. And this very quickly takes us to the heart of the gospel because at the cross we see both God's justice and his mercy at the same time. We often talk about the cross ...as the place of God's mercy and that's exactly right because the cross is the place where God in mercy forgives every sinner who asks for forgiveness. But the cross is also the place where we see God's justice because we are seeing every sin paid for. If God just kind of forgives our sin by shrugging his shoulders and ignoring it, kind of like pretending it didn't happen, then God is not just... He's merciful, but he's not just. He must punish every sin if he is to be just. And he does at the cross. It's because of the cross that God can be both merciful to sinners and just in punishing sin. Uh, Romans 3 says this, it's on screen for you. God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of his blood to be received by faith. He did this to demonstrate his righteousness because in his forbearance, that's his patience, he'd left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. That is, he was merciful. God left the sins committed by his people before Jesus unpunished. That's wonderful, he's merciful. But if God just leaves it kind of unpunished, then God is not just. And we wouldn't tolerate an earthly judge who just kind of let the guilty people off. I mean, how much less should we tolerate God if he did that? And so we get the next verse on screen from Romans 3. He did this to demonstrate his righteousness at the present time so as to be just, right, because he doesn't leave sin unpunished, and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. That is, the one who mercifully forgives us through Christ. Justice and mercy. God is a God of perfect justice. Not one sin, not one evil act will ever escape unpunished or unaccounted for. God can be counted on to right the wrongs in our world. The only question really is, Who pays? Who pays? Because either sin will be paid by the individual on Judgment Day or that sin will be paid for by God incarnate on the cross. Perfect justice, every sin accounted for and paid for, but also wonderfully merciful to sinners like us. What we learn about God in Judges chapter 9 is that he is a God of justice. And we see his justice played out in this story as he brings justice to Abimelech and Shechem for the calculated and callous and self-serving murder of an entire family. That's the first thing that we learn about God. Which leads us to the second thing, and that is leave revenge to God. Because if you know the first point, like if you know that God is a God of justice who right's all the wrongs, then when you are wronged, You can resist that very strong human desire to seek revenge yourself you can leave it to god like jotham does you know in this world you are going to be hurt by someone i can guarantee it a family member might react really unkindly to you someone could cheat on you or slander you or hurt you in some way And part of you is going to want some level of justice for the hurt that they put you through. Now, you might not want to drop a millstone on their head from the bell tower. The payback that you'll probably want will be more socially acceptable. You might just want to gossip about them. Gossip about them so that others know what a dog they are. So that others know what they did. So that others really look down on them. Or you might just want to emotionally hurt them, hurt them back so they know what it feels like. Or you might just cut them off, ghost them, give them the silent treatment so that they suffer for it. Oh, There are so many ways, so many ways, that you're going to be tempted to pay them back and so much of it is actually socially acceptable. But they're all cancerous. They're all cancerous. They all harden your heart. But you can walk away from equaling the score when you know that God is just. And when you know that Judgment Day is coming, you actually don't need to take revenge. You can leave it. It's what Romans 12 tells us. It's on screen. Romans 12 says this. Do not take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath. For it is written, it's mine to avenge. I will repay, says the Lord. On the contrary... If your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, you'll heap burning coals on his head. Don't take revenge. Now, when you are really hurt by someone, that is going to be more difficult than what you could imagine. And really, the only thing that is going to make it doable for you is if you know that God is just and that one day he'll restore the moral balance. 2 Thessalonians puts it like this, God is just. He will pay back trouble to those who trouble you and give relief to you who are troubled and to us as well. When's this going to happen? Well, this will happen when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven in blazing fire with his powerful angels. The last day. Now, wanting justice is a good it's a right thing justice is a good thing and God is just and the last day is a coming day of justice for all of the wrong and for all of the pain and all of the evil that has been done and when we know that day is coming it actually frees us from that toxic need to level the score now in this life and Jotham Jotham's a pretty good example of this I reckon because how easy could Jotham have organised bloody payback on the people of Shechem? Jotham, he is, think, think of this, he is the last remaining son of one of Israel's recent heroes of Gideon. I mean, Jotham could easily go to the Israelites and say to them, hey, you remember, don't you, how my father Gideon risked his life to save you from the Midianites? Well, the Israelites just down the road in Shechem just killed all his kids you guys owe Gideon your life, come with me, it is time for payback. That would have been very easy for him to do, and I suspect at some level very satisfying. I mean, the rage that must be brewing in Jotham right now. His family has been slaughtered one by one, yet instead of organising revenge, he leaves it to God. He climbs up on Mount Gerizim and he says, look, if you guys acted honorably, that's an awfully generous thing to say, wouldn't you think? If you guys acted honorably, now I don't see how that's possible, but I'm not God. So if you did act honorably, then may Abimelech be a blessing to you. But if you sinned in this, then may God see that justice gets served at some point. And Jotham runs away and he leaves it to God. And have a look at chapter 9, verse 22, because three years go by before God does anything. Chapter 9, verse 22, we read this. After Abimelech had governed Israel for three years, God stirred up animosity between Abimelech and the city of Shechem so that they acted treacherously against Abimelech. So it's only after three years that God puts things into motion that eventually leads to justice being served on Abimelech and Shechem. So how do you reckon Jotham felt after the first year when nothing happened? And after the second year when nothing happened? I mean, how tempting for him to think, ah, my brothers are dead and God is doing nothing about it. I will take this into my own hands. I will do this myself. But he left it to God. And eventually, in a future day... A day of judgment came at the hand of God, because God is just. Now, it's the same with us. We can leave that kind of stuff to God. We don't need to take revenge because we know that someday in the future there will be a day of justice, on Judgment Day. The two main characters in this story are God and Jotham, God who is said three times to repay the evil that has been done, and Jotham whose families have been slaughtered one by one, and he leaves it to God. So can you see, this passage is about revenge and about justice. And I bet you can think of a time that you were wronged and that you wanted revenge, even if it was just small, to slander them, to, to gossip about them, to give them the silent treatment. That is so cancerous it's also so unnecessary for God's people because we can rest knowing that God is a God of justice. We can leave it to God. Yes, I know that makes us different in many ways to how our culture might work. There are lots of revenge tactics in our culture that are socially acceptable. We've mentioned some of them already and perhaps you've already experienced some of that. I think that comes from actually our culture knowing that justice is good but not knowing that there's any guarantee that there is a God of justice in the universe and so if justice is good and you've been wronged, you've got to sort it out in this life now. But that's not how God's people are to think because we know that God is just and we know that a day of justice is coming so we can leave revenge and payback, we can walk away from it, we can even love our enemies as our Lord Jesus taught us. Uh, Now we could just park this here tonight, uh, but this is a good moment in Judges uh, to say one more thing tonight, and that is to say to don't use God's grace as a licence for sin. Uh, We've seen time and time again in Judges how God is gracious and merciful to Israel. Cycle after cycle, Israel keep doing evil. They keep rejecting God, getting in trouble and running back to him and asking for mercy and God keeps forgiving and delivering them. You do that enough and eventually it becomes very easy to use God's grace as a green light for sin. And maybe that's what Israel had been thinking You know, maybe they figured, hey, we're onto a really good thing here. We just do what we like. We just sin in whatever whatever way we like, and when we get in trouble, we just run back to God. He's going to forgive us anyway. But in this passage, we get this reminder of how dangerous it is for us to treat our sin lightly and to use God's grace and mercy as a license for sin. Because after eight chapters of all these cycles of sin met with mercy... Chapter 9 is this one moment, this one slither in the book of Judges where Israel's sin is met with justice. Don't use God's grace as a licence, as a green light for sin. Hebrews 10 says this, if we deliberately keep on sinning after we've received the knowledge of the truth then no sacrifice for sin is left but only fearful expectation of judgement. Now, don't let that Uh, worry you too much. God is a God who is gracious and merciful and always, always, always forgives the repentant sinner. But I don't think that using God's grace as a mercy, uh, God's grace and mercy as a credit card for sin to be stocked up on at no cost, that is really unwise and it is really dangerous for God's people. And this diagram, I think, I think it represents like an overview of Judges, and it actually shows us God's character really clearly. It shows us how overwhelmingly gracious God is to us. Because cycle after cycle, his people just keep throwing uh, his covenant in his face. And God keeps giving them the grace and mercy they don't deserve. Cycle after cycle, generation after generation, evil is met with mercy. And there's just this, this window here in Judges 9 where he gives them what they deserve, instead of giving them the mercy that they don't. But look at all the cycles. God is overwhelmingly gracious. He's overwhelmingly merciful. It dominates his character. But don't use that as a license to stock up on cost-free sin. C.S. Lewis described God like this. He said, God is not a tame lion, but he is good. He's not a tame lion. We should never use his mercy as a green light for sin. He's not a tame lion, but he is good. And so when we do sin, every repentant person will always find grace and mercy in the Lord Jesus at the cross, at that place where mercy and justice meet. And we're going to sing about that now as the musicians come back up.